Every week for me, and, and no doubt every pastor of a, of a local New Testament church, um, every week is a spiritual climb to a mountaintop that, um, that we reach, that I reach every Sunday with, of course, the Lord bringing me to that point. Now, some days, some Sundays, those peaks are higher than others, and sometimes the trek is a little more difficult to get there, uh, and that trek starts really Monday, um, and sometimes it's a little easier, but it is a high calling. Uh, with a high purpose to preach the Word of God, not just from the pulpit, but anytime we share the truth of God's Word. Um, it is indeed preaching this morning here to God's people, God's Word to God's people. And that, that is something. God, God loves that what we're doing here. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.18 states, yeah, states that the preaching of the cross, of Jesus' cross, is to them that perish, foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to the world, but unto us which are saved, what is it? The power of God. We can tap into the power of God this morning that's really always there available for us, but God says through the Apostle Paul that it becomes even more available through the preaching, through Holy Spirit preaching of God's work, of God's Word. You know, earlier in this week, um, I was reading through the book of Matthew as I, as I normally do as we've been tra- traveling through the gospel according to Matthew, looking for that passage. Of course, uh, it's a part of my daily devotions, whatever, whatever Bible book we're in, is to, is to go and read uh, where we're at and, of course, a little bit ahead. But I didn't get any indication that we'd be in Matthew today, uh, as I, even though I revisited those chapters all throughout the week, uh, from 19 all the way into 22. I was then reminded of a, what a preacher once told me. I don't really remember who this preacher was. I don't forget where I, I forget where I heard it. But it says, but he told me that God always has something to say to his people. God always has something to say to his people. And when in doubt, this last part is from Pastor Redding. When in doubt, preach Jesus. When in doubt, preach Jesus. And this brings us to the book of Romans. Romans is a, is a, is a, is a favorite for many folks. Um, there's a lot of doctrine in the book of Romans. And we're going to kind of Look at the, the bird's eye view, a little bit of Romans up until this point, but I want us to begin reading uh, uh, there in chapter 11, verse 28. If you don't mind, and if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Romans chapter 11, look at verse number 28. The Bible says, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Speaking of the Jews. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so, have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath, not, for God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. Verse 36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And without without even breaking uh, that, that concept there, go right to verse number one. I beseech you, kind of because of all those things, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
You know, the last phrase of verse number one says, which is your reasonable service. Therefore, this morning, uh, we're going to look at what God considers our reasonable service. That'll be the title of our message this morning, reasonable service. But with that, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for allowing us to be here. We thank you for the, the persistency, the perfectness, Lord, the, the completion, the trustworthiness of your word that we can go to your word and know that it's truth, Lord. We're so very thankful for that, Lord. And even more so, Lord, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful that we have eternal life, that we can turn to you no matter where we are in this world, no matter who we are, no matter what status we have in this life, we can turn to you for time and time of need and time of help to find that grace we often so need. And, Lord, we're so very thankful for that, Lord. And, Lord, as we live this life as Christians, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we can get to that point where we realize that a life completely given to you is not above and beyond what you can ask for us, but simply reasonable. And Lord, we're so very thankful for that. We're thankful for the cross. We ask that you meet with us in a very special way this morning. Be with the children across the way, Lord. Be with all that we do this morning. May we take all of who we are and worship you and see you high and lifted up this morning. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please, please be seated. You know, for the purpose of context, we talk, we, I talked about that bird's eye view, if you will. For the purpose of context, um, Romans is, is, is a letter written by Paul to the Christians in Rome before Paul reached Rome. They, they were growing in themselves, no doubt a product of, the, of, the, um, of Pentecost um, when, when they were sent out from there. So there's a group of Christians there that is growing, and, and Paul wrote to them. And uh, that, this whole book is very, very uh, geared towards those Christians living in the most worldly wicked city of the time there and the most powerful uh, for that matter. And so for the purpose of context, um, Romans chapters 9 through 11, obviously uh, we're in 11 and 12 this morning, but 9 through 11, um, those chapters deal much with how we are to understand. Remember, he's writing to the Christians there in Rome, uh, probably a mixed audience of Jew and Gentile, and he's writing to them to help them and to help us understand the differences between Jew and Gentile in the eyes of God when it comes to personal salvation. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to talk too much about those differences there other than how we're all in the same category. And Romans 11.32 captures that category very, very clearly, which says that God, hath, God concludes all in unbelief so that he might have mercy upon all. God concludes all of us, Jew and Gentile, uh, in unbelief so that, we might, that he might have mercy upon all. Earlier, even in this letter here, um, back in Romans chapter 3, I think it was, Paul asked, what advantage, what advantage hath the Jew? What advantage hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Does the Jew have a better chance at eternal life? And he answers there in Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, no, not in any wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. No not one. Why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's me, that's you, that's everybody we know, that's from Adam and on. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, excluding our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all truly means all. All means all. But thankfully, as we know, as we are very confident, which is the reason why we're here this morning, way before we get to Romans chapter 12, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul wrote this in Romans 5.8, that God commended His love toward us, that is Jew and Gentile, everybody, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Praise God. 
Praise God. So get this now. For From our human perspective, if there is anything unreasonable, it is that Jesus died for his enemies so that, he, so that we wouldn't be his enemies, all because God commends his love toward us. From a human perspective, that is unreasonable. But from God's perspective, which is, by the way, always the right perspective, if the crucifixion of God's only begotten Son for the sins of the world was not unreasonable, God, what is? What is? If the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of the entire world was not unreasonable service to God the Father, what is? I submit to you that nothing is. It is impossible to serve God too much. Impossible. It is impossible to serve God too much. It is impossible to love God too much. It is impossible to have too much faith in God, to follow Him too much, and on and on and on. It's impossible. It's nothing, none of that is unreasonable. Romans 12, 1 again says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. You know, because God is who God is, and because God has done what God has done, it is just not possible for us to live or give too much for the cause of Christ. It's not. There is no persecution, no opposition, no sacrifice that qualifies as above and beyond what is reasonable for Jesus because he's worth every effort and every loss. Every minute of our lives, he's worth it. I once heard a story, uh, I think I've shared it here before, there was a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, they're out of Portland, Oregon. We won't hold that against him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but Jim Elliott, he was actually a missionary to um, the fields of Ecuador. And uh, as he was there, he was, many of you know, probably know the story. There's even books and movies written about his life or shown about his life. But he was murdered there in the fields of Ecuador. And he said this before he was murdered. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He didn't think that was unreasonable. And I recently just heard a story just a couple days ago about a Chinese family living in modern-day China. Just a couple years ago, this was true. Um, Modern Chinese family living in modern China who were born-again believers. Mom and dad had already been executed. Their son was arrested. And only the daughter remained free. And a guest missionary was coming to the church where she met secretly with many other believers. And she was, she, on time, she liked to sing there at the church. And she went to the guest missionary, and she says, do you mind if I still sing before the service? And he says, yes. And she grabbed his arm and said, can I sing twice today? I usually only sing once, but can I sing twice? And she says, of course. Well, the Chinese pastor later told the guest missionary that the reason she asked that is because she believed and had evidence that showed that she would be arrested shortly after that service. They were on to her like they were on to her brother. And this would probably be her last time to worship. And she wanted to sing a little bit more. Her second song was entitled, Joy Unspeakable. Joy Unspeakable. Wow. You know, we could no doubt go on and on with real stories about real people doing and and enduring great things for God. 
And while each requires faith beyond measure, they are logical expectations for Christ-like living. God may or may not call you to the jungles of Ecuador or to the underground churches in in communist-controlled countries or wherever it may be, but whatever He asks of us, it's not unreasonable, nor will it ever be. And in this passage, I think we see a few things that God, through the Apostle Paul, is conveying to us. We won't be here too long this morning, but I think it's short on purpose. Look again at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The first thing we see today is that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. God wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when we read that, we're thinking, what in the world? How can I be a living sacrifice? Sacrifices are dead. Well, that's, what he's, that's the, really the point here. The words holy and acceptable really speak of many things, but of, at a minimum, and we'll come back to those words there, but holy and at a minimum speak of the quality of what we're giving as a sacrifice, the quality of our, our bodies. In other words, and very practically this morning, a good sacrifice very clearly throughout the Old Testament is a sacrifice without blemish without blemish. And if we are to present our bodies as sacrifice unto God, we should be concerned about the condition of our bodies, yes? I mean, this is a gift from God. We are created in God's image. Our fingers, our toes, our ears, and all these things, these should be, this should be something that's, that we should honor. It's something that God's. we are a steward of this body. We should be concerned about the condition of our bodies, not just because we want to last, live the longest, but because we are to offer this as a living sacrifice to God. Again, common sense even tells us that we should be good stewards of the life that God's given us. We only get one of these, in this life anyway. We only get one body. We can't trade it in. We can't upgrade it, I don't think. Not yet anyway. (laughs) And yet sometimes we treat our cars better than we treat our bodies. I'm guilty. We are to present them as a living sacrifice. And... As a Christian, it's important to see that our body is actually a temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. What did they call that place in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God dwelt in the tabernacle? What did they call that place? The Holy of Holies. We are the New Testament version of the Holy of Holies. This is the temple of God. You have the temple of God. In fact, looking at the, again at the bigger picture of Romans, we see that every person has sinned in this body and is guilty before God, but every person also can be justified by grace through Jesus Christ. And every person who is justified can then rest assured that there's no new condemnation. Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Every person who is justified can rest assured there is no condemnation for them. And because you have been justified, Paul exhorts here that we are to present our redeemed bodies as a living sacrifice. Put differently, because your body is a temple, we are to dedicate that temple. Because of our justification, God desires dedication. He desires a living sacrifice. You know, the Bible records really many sacrifices. Lots. I mean, I think Solomon did 40,000 sacrifices in one, at one moment or one, one, right after another on one day. 
So the Bible records many sacrifices within, within its covers, but really there are a few that stand out among the masses. And you can probably know, know where they're at. The first, of, the first one of them I want to talk about this morning is what we've been talking about, or at least been reminded of there on, on Thursdays, and that's found in Genesis chapter 22. That, of course, is Isaac. We know the story of Isaac, how he willingly went up that mountain to Mount Moriah to lay his life down. He carried the wood for the fire on his back. We also know that God sent the ram to take Isaac's place so he didn't have to die. And while Isaac did not die physically, I want to submit to you this morning that he did die to self. He was indeed, I think, the very definition of a living sacrifice. He went up there completely submitted to the will of God and the will of his father. He was dead to self. He surrendered his body to obedience and became a living sacrifice. It is noteworthy, I think I've mentioned this before as well, but the trek through the mountains after, after they separated themselves from the other, other workers there, Abraham and Isaac, the trek to get to that specific mountain there in Moriah was probably, probably more than a day's journey, probably even two or three days with just Abraham and Isaac alone as they trekked to the top of that mountain. But Isaac completely surrendered for three days, if that's the time it took him. That's a long time to be completely submissive. I think we truly see the surrender of Isaac's body also by Isaac's father. In verse 5, Abraham said, Abide ye here, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. So we'll talk about that worship here in a moment, and I worship here in a moment, and I've mentioned it a couple times here. It's one of the things that jumps out at me a lot when I read that Bible. I read this passage here, the definition of worship, but I want to uh, really restate that fact there that both Isaac and Abraham surrendered Isaac's body, right? Both of them were pres- Abraham was presenting his son as a living sacrifice, really willing to go all the way through, and Isaac the same. But here in that in verse 5 and 22, he says, Abide ye here, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And I love that fact where Abraham says, I'm going to come again. I'm, we're, we, both of us, are coming back down that mountain. So the complete surrender of Isaac's body by Abraham and the complete surrender by Isaac's body by Isaac himself, they both considered, or at least Abraham considered it worship. Dying to self, I think, is probably the greatest form of worship. And it's often, this type of worship is often different than what we call worship today. I'm not saying that we can't be joyful. We should be joyful. We should have the most joy. But if we start our days off with this kind of worship, if we begin our days by surrendering even our bodies to God, our energy to God, our efforts to God, our desires to God, if we start off our day with that instead of expecting God to do something for us, I think it dramatically changes our days. It dramatically changes our perspective, it certainly does for me. When I wake up and I commit all of I, all of I am, or I at least attempt to do that, it changes my perspective. Even as I was writing this sermon and studying what it means to be a living sacrifice, I realized that every day should be a living sacrifice. Every day I'm supposed to be like Isaac going to the top of Mount Moriah. Every day. Every day. And if you and I approach every day like this, I think then we will begin to understand what it means to be holy, what it means to be acceptable, and what it means to be a living sacrifice. And friends, this is not something that you and I can achieve alone. 
It's just not possible. I don't think Abraham could do what he did or Isaac do uh, what he did without divine assistance. They had to be surrendered so that God could work through them. It's not something that we can achieve. It does not come naturally to us. By definition, it only comes by surrender. It is a supernatural process. And as we look through the text, we see also that Isaac is not the only example. He is not even the greatest example. That title is reserved, of course, for our Savior, who went all the way. There was no ram in the bush for our Savior. He was that lamb. He sacrificed his body for you, and he sacrificed his body for me. Philippians 2.8 says, and, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, it's not a part of this sermon too much, but never get over the fact that Jesus went to the cross for your sins. Never, never let that be, oh, wow. I'm glad he did that. Let, be excited about that. We have eternal life because of the cross. You know, it was never asked of any of the Old Testament priests to sacrifice their bodies like Jesus did his. God demanded burnt sacrifices and offerings from them, but that's not what he demanded from Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, 10 verse 5, the Bible says, wherefore, then, uh, wherefore when he, Jesus, cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. You didn't, you didn't require that of me, but a body. Thou hast prepared me, a body thou hast prepared me. You see, Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross, but his sacrifice is very clear here. It did not begin on the cross. It did not begin when his back was turned to the smiters. It did not even begin on that pathway to the cross, much like Isaac's pathway to Mount Moriah. Jesus, his whole entire life was a sacrifice. He lived the crucified life. In essence, he went to the cross every day. We are to also go to the cross every day. So God, through Paul, is not calling on us to be Isaac. He's not even calling on us to be Christ. But he is calling on us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to be Christ-like. And he does not want, God that is, he does not want what is left from us. He wants the best of us. He does not want our bodies after we abuse it. Um, he'll take it, but he wants the best. He wants us to offer the best to him. He wants it to be holy and acceptable. And really, to be honest, the only way to present it to be holy and acceptable before God is in Jesus. We must have our sins forgiven and all of that stuff wiped away because God demands a holy and acceptable sacrifice. You know, we have used our bodies for so many other things in this life. Make it a point to use it for God. Use your bodies for God. But then as we, go, as we go on in the text here, look at verse number 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I like this, don't be conformed, but be transformed. So our reasonable service includes, as you continue in that passage there, we are to, by the renewing of our minds. The only way we're going to be transformed is by the renewing of our minds. So first Paul mentions our bodies, and then he mentions our minds. We are not to be conformed to this world. I mean, think about that for a moment. We are not to be conformed to this world. This world does not have a fixed definition for truth. It just doesn't. It does not have a fixed definition for truth, 
for reality, or for just about any other thing. It doesn't have a fixed definition. So why would a Christian, or anybody for that matter, be conformed to something that doesn't stay the same? We are to be fixed according, or transformed according to the Lord, according to Him. We, we cannot be fixed to something that keeps moving. This is here, and we conform to it, and then it changes, and it changes, and it changes. It's not leading in a right direction. It's constant change, but not because of improvement, but because of the mold that keeps changing. Uh, the, uh, the world keeps changing. It's not fixed on truth. We are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have the Holy Spirit of God within you, you are actively being conformed to be more like Jesus Christ this very moment. And here in Romans 12, verse 2, we see that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now that word renewing is a reference to complete renovation. It is complete renovation, and it's really quite simple. I like simple concepts. I really do. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's easy to understand. So here, here it is. The more we allow, this is, this is the renewing of our minds. The more we allow in our minds from the world, the wrong friends, the wrong movies, the wrong music, the wrong language, the wrong literature, on and on and on, the more we are conformed to the world. It's really, it's not rocket science. But the more we allow in our minds from godly things, Bible study, preaching, prayer, worship, Christian friendship, surrounding with Christian influence with believers, and on and on and on, the more we are transformed to the image of His Son. You know, in this passage, God does not want us to be conformers. He wants us to be transformers. And I'm not talking about these stupid machines. <laughs> I couldn't help myself, Roby, but there's more than meets the eye. <laughs> You know, God did pay a high price for us. He paid a high price for us to be his children. And he wants us to be like his children. He wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to be transformed. To be transformed. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, I think three or four weeks ago, Peter, James, and John, when they were on that holy mount there, we talked about that up there with Jesus. Matthew 17, 2 says that Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So Jesus, who is all God and all man, the perfect God-man, was transfigured before them. Nothing on earth was brighter. He changed right before them. Now I want to point out that we know that God is always holy. He did not become holy in that mount. They just saw a glimpse of that glory. He did not become more like the Son of God. He was already the Son of God. He did not need to be transfigured. We need to be transfigured. If you remember from that sermon, the word used for transfigured simply means to be changed. And his appearance did in fact change, even though he didn't. Again, his appearance did. But unlike Christ, again, we need to be changed. Appearance, everything. We need to be changed. We need to be transfigured. The underlying Greek word for transfiguration is the same word for transformation. The same thing. We are to be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul uses the same Greek word again. And I think we even mentioned it a couple weeks ago, speaking about how we are changed, 
transfigured, transformed, how we are changed into the same image, that would be the image of God, from glory to glory as we study and, and, and learn from Him by the Spirit of the Lord. I think it's worth pointing out that the transformation in 2 Corinthians 3.17 and the transformation here in Romans 12.2 both refer to changes not in the hereafter, now, today. It's talking about right now. Be changed now. Now, make no mistake, we will be changed in glory, without a doubt. First John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But even in that verse, which looks ahead, John wrote that we shall be like him, again, future tense, but it also says that now we are the sons of God. That's present tense. In other words, and on a very practical level, we are in transformation mode. And Romans 12.2 clearly teaches that we have an active role. It says, be transformed. Be transformed. Now, if we understand 2 Corinthians 3.17 correctly, it's the Holy Spirit who does the changing. God who changes hearts, right? God does the changing. God does the transforming. So what is our takeaway? I think it's quite simple. Be changeable. Be changeable. Let the Lord have his way with you. We must do our part in the renewing of our minds. It is so important that under the inspiration of an all-knowing God, Paul beseeches his readers to do so. He says, I beseech you to do these things. I beseech you to be transformed. That word beseech is really a powerful word. We don't really use it all that much today. But it's not really begging. Uh, it's not that kind of begging, but it has the same kind of emotion behind, behind begging. It is, I really need you to do this. I really want you to do this. I, I really recommend you to do this. I beseech you. And as we go forward in our Christian lives from, from today on, we must take the act of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice as serious as Paul is encouraging us to do so. I beseech you. We should beseech each other. We should encourage, strongly so, each other to do this. We must take serious the acts of renewing our mind as we go forward from today and even beyond. And verse 2, again, look at that. It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it gives us a reason why. And I like the way this this verse concludes. Why? So that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So our reasonable service concludes with discerning God's will. I must apologize. I told you in the beginning that it would be short. I don't think it's going to happen. Maybe we'll be all right on time, though. Discern the will of God. I think the progression is clear in this text here. After we have surrendered ourselves completely, present our bodies, And after we have renewed our minds through allowing good things in, the Bible, prayer, worship, good things, not not the worldly things, then we will be able, we will be enabled to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We all want to live the will of God, yes? Amen. So notice that this isn't just a little direction here. He didn't say, do this and do that, and God will give you some droplets and some, some, some little... 
um, a, a, bread, a bread trail on how to find out God's will for your life. He says, no, you do these things so that you can prove what is, that, that word prove is the same as discern, so that you can discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's not a little direction here or there. This is the perfect will of God. That word perfect is a reference to full. It's a reference to maturity. It's a reference to complete, the complete will of God. You and I can know God's complete will, here's the catcher, in the moment. <laughs> in the moment. And maybe even a little bit down the way. Remember that passage there in Psalm, light into my path? Or a light into my feet and a lamp into my path? Or Y'all get it. Y'all understand. <laughs> the word perfect, complete will of God. You know, God's will, I don't think I need to say this, but I will, it's always the best for us. And it's always honorable to follow it. So no surprise, Paul says that it's good. God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. That word acceptable means well-pleasing. God can look down on our lives well-pleased with our, our obedience to his will. It means well-pleasing, as in it pleases God. But it also means, just like it sounds, that God accepts it. God accepts, it's kind of simple and, and maybe circular, but God accepts his will for our lives. God accepts, I mean, it's his will. God accepts His will for our life. Therefore, we should accept God's will for our lives. The same word here is used in, in verse number 1, that word acceptable. In verse number 1. So we have acceptable will of God here, and up in the top in verse number 1, we have an acceptable living sacrifice. They're connected. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, well-pleasing unto God, reasonable service. Submitting ourselves to God, giving it all in is acceptable. That's part of getting his acceptable will. Paul also wrote in Galatians 2.20, that familiar passage, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He lived a surrendered life, because a surrendered life is well-pleasing to God. So if we want, if you and I have a desire at all to discern God's well-pleasing will for our lives, we must live also that crucified life, which is acceptable and well-pleasing to God. And as clear as clear can be, to restate it differently, to discern the will of God, we must let go of our own. To discern the will of God, we must let go of our own and be transformed by the renewing of our mind by God. To discern God's desires for our lives, we must crucify our own desires. Paul even writes in a different passage that we must mortify the deeds of the body, to kill those deeds, to let them go, to be surrendered to God. We are to crucify our own desires and be changed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. You know, the world does not need more of me it does not need more of you. It needs more of Jesus. I don't need even more of me. I don't need more of you. Can I say that without being mean? <laughs> you don't need more of me. <laughs> but we need more of him. We need more of him. In the words of John the Baptist, he said, I must decrease and he must increase in every aspect of our lives. My complete surrender of self to Jesus and your complete surrender uh, to Jesus is not some radical concept either. It's not some radical thing for some overzealous few. It's reasonable. 
it just looks radical because nobody does it. Remember, if there is anything unreasonable from our human perspective, it is that Jesus died for his enemies so that we wouldn't be his enemies. It is that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross so that all men could be saved. It is that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. If there's anything unreasonable from our point of view, it's that because God commended his love toward us. We can't even fathom what that means. But from God's perspective, uh, perspective again, from his point of view, if the crucifixion of God's only begotten Son for the sins of the world was not unreasonable service to God, nothing is, nor can be. When God calls on us to do more, to be more, when he says go, when he says speak, when he says do this or that, when he asks you to spend your entire life serving him, our only response should be, yes, Lord, that is completely reasonable. I am all in. I am all in. Because he is worth every effort and every cost. 